I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mike Cocking, a golf course architect based in Australia and part of the Ogilvy, Clayton, Cocking, and Mead design firm. Mike, welcome on. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to talk uh, golf course architecture, some sand belt, Australia, and... Um, Little learn a little bit more about your firm and and what you guys are doing down under. Absolutely, yep. Look forward to it. So I'd uh, love to hear. I think knowing you a little bit, I I think you've got a really interesting background. How you got into golf course architecture? Why don't you tell us how you got into golf and uh, architecture? Sure. Well, I, I guess I got into golf. My my first sort of experience with golf was my my parents decided to take the game up when I was about um, I don't know seven or eight, and they dragged my sister and I out to the golf course and you know wander around with them and we hated it. It was it was not interesting at all. I probably maybe I would have been hooked if I had been allowed to swing a club or try and have a hit, but they were just new to the game and probably nervous that I'd you know hit a shank and smash a car or something. So um, so that was sort of my, my first taste of it. And then years later, I um, well, I used to uh, – my parents were teachers and they started – they would start school a bit earlier than I would so that they would drop me at my grandparents' house and I'd just, you know, watch TV for an hour before they would take me to school. And, and one morning uh, the golf was on and it was uh, – I reckon it was the 80 – Eight U.S. Open, so it was, it was Curtis Strange and Faldo, and I, I was kind of, um, I found it quite, you know, captivating really because it was a tight finish. I thought Faldo was cool because he looked like Harrison Ford, and Indiana Jones was big at the time, so I kind of, I was rooting for him. And I, I went to school, and lo and behold, they they tied, and so it was a playoff. So the next day, I got to see it again. And that probably was what really grabbed me. And then I kind of found my parents' clubs in, in the cupboard at home and started kind of chipping around the backyard. And so my dad decided to take me to a driving range and it kind of went from there really. And he he was keen to take up the game with me. So we sort of started together. And I was probably 11 then, 11 or 12. And, you know, I went from the driving range to a, you know, a local kind of muni you know, public golf course, and then I sort of joined a proper golf course, if you like, when I was perhaps 14, 13, 14. Then I joined Peninsula, where we're, we're working now, when I was 17. I was there for about 20 years, and then uh, six six years ago, I joined Kingston Heath, because I live literally next door to Kingston Heath, which is kind of nice. Yeah, it's a good spot. Yeah, so that was sort off. of my introduction to golf. To golf course design was a little bit, a little bit later. I mean, I think like most kids, I kind of drew golf. Once I was kind of, once I was into golf, I was really into golf. You know, I would read all the magazines and, um, you know, see photos of Cypress Point and Augusta and, you know, that was just like Disneyland to me. And I guess the thought of ever seeing those was uh, certainly, um, you know, really held my attention. Um, and then I um, I was... My boss at the time, I was working in a golf shop when I was about 15 or 16, and my boss got a copy of one of the, the limited edition copies of Tom Doak's um, Confidential Guide. And I borrowed that and sort of reading through that, uh, started to understand that there was this whole other element to, to golf courses that I'd never really thought about. You know, I guess like most kids, you sort of, 
the condition of the course is probably what how you measure whether it's good or bad and suddenly he was you know talking about routings and talking about all these things that I I didn't really know what they were and then as I as my golf improved I I was in what's known as the uh, Victorian Institute of Sport which was um, it was kind of Australia's answer to the college program in America so it was started in the 90s uh, Robert Allenby, Stuart Appleby, Jeff Ogilvie, uh, Aaron Badley, they all came through that program. And through that, I got to travel. I was i was a good amateur, so I, I played sort of internationally a fair bit. And um, yeah, I used Tom's book really to find all the courses near where I was playing that are worth seeing. So that, it kind of extended from there. And then I, I was never really comfortable with the idea of playing professionally. I, I did briefly, but I don't know. Maybe maybe having options isn't a good thing if you're trying to be a professional golfer. But I'd I'd finished a degree in engineering, and I didn't want to be a struggling pro by any stretch. And um, I was always I was interested in golf course design, obviously, but figured it would be really hard to get into. But then Mike Clayton and a couple of other guys who had started a company together got the job at Peninsula to do some work, which was where I was playing. And I knew Mike through golf and um, sort of approached them whether they needed sort of some help or part-time work or whether, you know, whether I could, how I could kind of get involved in golf course design. And that was in 2000. So, and, and Ashley Mead actually uh, joined that firm at the same time to help out with construction. So Mike, Ashley and I have, worked together for 18 years and it kind of went from there really and then over time I got more interested in golf course design less interested in playing and it just sort of you know I played less golf and worked more in design so it kind of was a pretty that's how it progressed I guess have you found that since you stopped caring as much about golf that your your golf has gotten better the more you think about design when you play I enjoy it more, <laughs> certainly. I, I, having a bad round and not worrying about not having to stress over all these putts you've missed or this shot you've missed, and having to go to the range, work on it. You know, I, I do like. I, I enjoy my golf again, where you just, you know, you just have a round, and once you putt out on eighteen, that's the end of it. I always find it hard to look at, to kind of look at the architecture and play it the same time because you get you do get involved with your game and i find i see a lot more just walking a golf course rather than playing it so i'm, I'm never that fast if i go overseas somewhere and see a golf course that i've always wanted to see i'm not that fast if i don't play it you know in an ideal world you'd perhaps walk it in the morning and then play it in the afternoon but really do you have that amount of time free so yeah i, I see a lot more kind of walking the golf course i find yeah i i would agree you you can just it removes one like personal element from it and like you're not looking for balls and especially if yeah. you're walking it alone you can just walk and and observe it you know you're not talking to somebody um but it's yeah. it's rare that you get to do both that's right and you you probably don't concentrate on the you don't notice the peripheral things you know you because you do kind of just focus on the the playing areas and down the middle or and wherever you hit your ball to um what would you say is one thing that like the average golfer beginning to get into architecture do to understand more about architecture while they're playing? It's a good question. It, I guess this, like on the sand belt here, the, the strategies are fairly straightforward and quite, it's, it's almost um, strategic design 101. You know, the, the greens are very clearly angled one way or the other. You know, and so if you work, if you, if you study the green complex and work your way back, the strategy of the whole makes sense. And I, I think once they understand, like we talk about it a lot when we have um, like a committee meeting or something, it's amazing how few people understand the very basics of strategy, you know, and, and once, and it's not really a complicated topic but i think once they understand that okay well you know the green's designed to favor play from a particular part of the fairway and usually around that spot there's a hazard 
you know, so if you play close to the hazard, you get a, a better angle. And if you play further away from it, it's a, it's a worse angle. And it's, you know, there's shades of grey. It's not black or white. You can, you can aim a metre a little bit to the right or, or 40 metres to the, to the right and, and the shot just incrementally gets harder. And I think once they, it's, you can see the light bulb go off when, when you do explain that. And then suddenly they start thinking about all the holes on the golf course and, and how they're arranged. Um, so I, th I think it's, in terms of playing it, I, I think they need to understand that basic logic and then they can kind of apply it to their own game and their own golf course. I tell you one thing that I find interesting, I've got a set of hickory clubs, which well, I've got a couple of sets, but um, it's it's a lot of fun using hickories and on, on an interesting, on a strategic golf course because you really understand the strategy of the holes. They make more sense because you can't hit, you know, with, with the hickories, everything comes out a bit lower and it runs. You, you can't hit that high spinning nine iron that stops on the green if you're out of position. So the strategy of the golf course really shines through with hickories, if that makes sense. You, you have to be, it, it's such a reward for being in the right position and such a penalty for being out of position with hickories just because you can't hit that recovery shot. So I think people would understand strategy very quickly, if perhaps if they had a round with hickories. Maybe that's what people need to start learning golf on, hickories. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but, um, I think you'd have a hard time convincing a 19-year-old you know, to put away his M2 and pick up a you know wooden shafted club. But... Yeah, it might actually slow down the growth of the game. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um so uh, in terms of you, you guys have a, you got to have one of the best uh, playing firms in the uh, country between. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but working with uh, Mike Clayton, Jeff Ogilvie and Ashley Mead, how do you guys work and split up work? Um, yeah. So we're, there's a couple of other staff members as well that have worked with us for a long time. So we, we like that kind of, turnkey approach I guess or um, I guess I've always liked the idea that we can do everything from the first kind of little concept sketch basically right through so like a lot of the, the modern firms like Bill and Ben and Tom and um, what have you we, we build we build our own work we don't really like to um, give it to a contractor so I guess in the early phases of a, of a new project or a design we all kind of get involved with that and sort of chat through some of the big picture ideas. Um, you know, Jeff's still playing, of course, in America, so he's probably not as involved as, you know, as long-term he, he hopes to be. Um, and then, you know, as, I guess as it moves into more of a construction, probably Ashley and I have more of a lead role in terms of being on site and working with the guys um, out in the field. And... You know, that can limit how many projects you take on. Um, usually two sort of big projects in construction is about as much as we want to do because invariably you've got, you've also then got, you know, jobs that you're pitching on or there might be two or three other jobs that are in design. And, you know, it's obviously more than just those two that are in construction. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's typically how it works. In terms of you got the collaborative approach, and obviously with Jeff and, and Mike, you've got a couple of big names from in Australia and obviously Jeff across the world. What are the benefits of working in that environment versus, say, being out on your own? I think um, I think collaborative approaches, it, I, I, I do find it minimizes your misses. You know, sometimes if you're on your own, you go down a certain path and perhaps you, you're pushing hard to build a green or build a hole on the edge. It's helpful to have someone with fresh eyes come out and say, ooh, you know, I think it might be a bit of a stretch or it's a little bit too hard or a bit too slopey or, you know, because you do get, you get so engrossed in that project that sometimes you forget to step back and look at, look at the, the big picture. So that's where it's very helpful having any of the guys come in and um, really with fresh eyes have a look at it, 
Jeff, I mean, Jeff and Mike, certainly from a playing point of view, is, is really helpful as well. I know there's been – I mean, you don't build too many tournament golf courses. There's not many tournaments in Australia, but we do consult to a lot of courses that host tournaments. And it is sometimes interesting. You sort of forget how good those guys are, how far they hit it, what they see as being a reasonable shot to take on under certain conditions. Um, so and it sometimes just kind of puts a different perspective on on a whole. So that's always interesting. Um, versus on your own, I mean, perhaps maybe the, the negative of a collaborative approach is that you may not get those way out ideas because they might always be tempered by um, in, in a collaboration. But I think if you if you come up with a, an idea and put a case forward to why it's a good idea, typically we'll, we'll go ahead and build it and then, um, you know, just see how it evolves. You can always, I mean, by building your own work, that's the advantage. You can build something. If it doesn't look right, you can just change it. Yeah, that's, uh, I think sometimes I, I would benefit from somebody reading over some stuff that I write because sometimes I might go a little far, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's like the it's like the email. You know, you never I I never send an email at night. You know, you because you you can, you can get um. It's amazing in the morning when you wake up and have a read of that same email. You're like, oh yeah, I'm not sure I can send that. <laughs> I send all my emails at late at night, so that that might oh, be one of my problems. <laughs> wait for the morning um so you're finishing up a project uh lanhai international in china i'm curious how golf design and the golf culture is different there compared to australia or the states yeah it's um someone once described it to me as that you know golf in in china and, and perhaps some other not not just China, but in in the the countries where golf is new, that it's um, it's sort of an unsophisticated market, and and it's not a criticism. It's just that because golf is so new, they don't necessarily know what's good and bad. You know what what's good design, what's bad design. Um, you know, in America, you know, you've had a hundred years for it to evolve and to educate people, and um, likewise, well, longer in in the UK about. About, you know, hundred years in Australia, so it it is tricky trying to, you know, so things like, um, I guess most clients in China would would expect a par seventy two, for instance, because that's kind of what they understand as being the norm, and you know, four par threes and four par fives, and sort of all those things. Just when you're getting, just when you're new to golf design, that the things that you kind of understand as being the norm, that that's sort of, I guess, where a lot of the the golf is at. Um, so that can be a challenge for sure. I, I know when when uh, Bill and Ben were building uh, Shenquin Bay, uh, uh, supposedly that it was so different. I think people were wondering just how how the, um, the Chinese would react to it because it was a course that you would expect to see, you know, in America, um, but perhaps not in a country where most of the golf courses were your typical resort style um, golf. You know, lots of water sort of resort-style bunkers, and, um, yeah, they were wondering how they would react to it. But I believe the client there was very worldly. It, it, it travelled extensively around the world, so he, he kind of was confident that that was the right right approach. Yeah, in China, they, unlike, like, the UK, they started with St. Andrews. America, we had, like, Chicago Golf and Newport Country Club. Australia, you had... Um, Alistair McKenzie pay an early visit and kind of set Melbourne on the right path. But in China, they got like Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer designing courses. Mm-hmm. And like the era of signature design gave you know birth to golf there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. That's... Um, and now it's a, it's an interesting because of the, the moratorium on new golf courses that there's a, believe there's 496 legal golf courses now in China, um, you know, because they've closed so many that were built illegally. Um, and that hasn't really been opened up yet. So depending on how long that that goes, because the course we're working on there was an existing golf course and we've just, it's a redesign. So it may be that the the next wave in China is more redesign work. It could be that, 
um, where a lot of those golf courses, they're legal, but perhaps they're not as good as they could be or they were part of, like you said, that sort of wave of signature designs that it might spread now. The idea of um, redesign work might kind of start spreading into China. So a high-profile club that you guys consult at is Kingston Heath, which is one of the best golf courses in the world regularly kind yep. of comparison is the Australian Marion. Um, and then you also consult at Shady Oaks, a high profile course in Dallas. What are the similarities and differences between clubs in Australia and the America? Um, so I guess, uh, Shady Oaks, so it's a it's a really pretty parkland style golf course. Um, Robert Trent Jones Senior built it for Marvin Leonard in the the fifties uh, on the back of Colonial. So they they built Colonial and they wanted a smaller private members course. Um, went to Shady Oaks and of course uh, Ben Hogan came across as part of that as well. So that became his home. Um, one of the things that I always find fascinating. And hopefully this answers your question in a roundabout way. Um, you know, whenever we've looked at courses in America, it's not all courses, but a lot of the, the classic American parkland style course, we're always intrigued by the, um, the way they're set up with typically, you know, lots of rough around the greens, um, quite often rough between the fairway bunkers and the, and the fairways, which we find curious because in Australia, that the norm is to cut fairways right to the edge of hazards. And we typically have a lot of short grass around greens. And so it's more of a, I think it's more of a British maintenance style in Australia. So we're really wedged firmly between, you know, we borrow a little bit from Britain and, and a little bit from America, I think, with our golf. Um, they certainly play firm and fast like they do in Britain, but there's other elements that are kind of similar to America. And what I guess is always interesting and part of the pitch to Shady Oaks or one of the things we sort of talked about was that it's kind of interesting that Augusta, you know, has been, has been if, you, if you asked most tour players what their favourite course is of the year, most of them would probably say Augusta. Most golfers in America, if you asked their, you know, their dream round or where would they love to go, they'd probably say Augusta. And Augusta, it's essentially maintained like a sandbelt golf course you know it's short heaps of short grass heaps of short grass around the green short grass to the edge of the bunkers it, it's it's kind of like royal melbourne really it's very similar and yet golf courses went in a totally different direction they, they went in another direction and yet every year everyone goes back to augusta and loves it and for whatever reason it kind of went down this other path so you know, one of the things, that, not that we're trying to turn Shady Oaks into a sandbell golf course, but certainly we talked a lot about that, tr trying to create more short grass and, and, and perhaps align a little closer to the way we like golf to be to be played. And they've really embraced that. I mean, in the first, Brent and I flagged some new fairway lines there, and I think they added 10 acres in, you know, a month. Of, of short grass and the members have, uh, have really liked it. So um, that, that is always a curiosity to me, though, that just the position that Augusta holds in American golf and yet people struggle to join the dots. You know, they look at their golf course and see the rough and you talk about short grass and they look at you perhaps like you're mad or what are you talking about? And yet, you know, come April every year, it, it's there for everyone to see. So, yeah, that, that is a curiosity. Most people seem to focus on like the flower beds and the green nature of Augusta and take the two worst things to their golf course and make it soft and slow and, and uh, plant some flowers. But curious, with, with extending fairway lines, it seems that one of the common you know, pushbacks from a club would be you're making this golf course easier. What is your response to that? Well, the... And that's true. I mean, it, you need to look at the whole package. Um, and because if the green complexes and the bunkering isn't great, then yeah, widening, of course, will make it easier. So they, they kind of fit together. I mean, ideally, there's lots of space for people to hit to, but in actual fact, the, the 
the desired area of the fairway is quite small, you know. And um, I think part of that, which is often forgotten about, is the is the maintenance. I mean, when people talk about um, tool courses and the like, I mean, one of the reasons that many of the sandbelt courses are still so relevant from a tournament perspective is how firm and fast the greens are, you know, because you can't, I mean, Kingston Heath's not particularly long in sort of US tour standards. It's probably 7,100 yards, maybe 7,200 yards. Um, but, you know, it's not just a driver off every tee because the, the greens are, uh, are so well designed and, and firm that if you are out of position, you, you, you can't easily hit sometimes you can't even hit the green if you're in the wrong spot so suddenly you're prepared to sacrifice some distance to hit a three iron or hit a two iron into the right position of the fairway so but if if the greens were if the greens were really soft then suddenly it, it wouldn't be quite as strategic because you could you could play to the greens from anywhere and if and if you watered it down even further and just built some fairly flat greens and and bought the bunkers further away from the putting surface then it would be even you know uh, less strategic again so it's it's not just a, you, you can't just look at the widening of the fairways it has to be looked at with the the position of the bunkers and 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 the green design too so there at shady there were some spots where you could easily add short grass particularly around the greens because there was a lot of greens that were perched up and there were some nice sort of hollows and slopes away from them where you could add short grass and not make it easier um in some ways, you know, short grass around the greens, if there's a slope, adding short grass actually makes it harder because a missed shot just the ball just finishes further away from the putting surface instead of getting caught up in that little bit of rough, you know, between the, the green and the bunker. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think when the ball rolls, it's very scary for, for good players especially. Yeah, and it puts, um, you know, it puts – doubt in a good player's mind because you don't know what to hit you know if, it, if it's done well so suddenly you've got five clubs in your head thinking well do i you know do i hit the kind of that three wood bump and run that you know the tiger kind of um did a fair bit of or do you try and hit a lob wedge or do you bounce it into the slope with like an iron iron or a wedge or do you putt it and but the the great thing is for a hacker for a bad player they can just pull a putter and they can at least kind of knock it up there and knock it knock it on the green they probably won't get up and down but it's a it's a really um that's where it's a clever hazard because it's hard for the good player and or confusing for the good player and kind of easy for the average player yeah i'm, I'm in agreement there um, a big, a high-profile project you're working is, is Peninsula, which is the course you grew up playing in Melbourne. Uh, yep. You know, how, is there some pressure with all the great courses around Melbourne designing a new course with all the historic courses? There is. I mean, it, it was it was a it's a great bit of land, the equal almost the equal to Royal Melbourne, really, but it was a course that. It never quite had reached its potential. So there'd been redesign work done there previously, and we'd done quite a lot of that. Um, but it was usually it was done on a shoestring, and it was never a comprehensive sort of um, redevelopment. Um, and I guess that they merged with a golf club called Kingswood. So now it's um, sort of Peninsula Kingswood is the new club, and and that allowed them financially the opportunity to look at a, a much bigger redevelopment, which is what sort of we're two-thirds of the way through. And the challenge for them absolutely is, so when people come to Melbourne and want a taste of Sandbelt Golf, they typically go to Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath. If they have time, they might go to Metropolitan Victoria, and usually that's it, then they go. They might go down to Tasmania to play Bamboo Dunes or King Island, and then they're gone. And as a result of that, um, or, 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 or this has actually influenced that, <laughs> that mindset, that there is a big gap between those four elite sandbelt clubs and kind of everyone else on the sandbelt. So their challenge and our challenge is to kind of turn four into five. You know, when people come to Melbourne, they need they want to go to Peninsula Kingswood. So that yeah, there is a lot of pressure attached to that. I mean, we've assembled a really good 
team down there and and so far the results are showing that you know it's it's looking really promising but um it's a it's a hard nut to crack that uh that elite sand belt um club if you like because they've had you know they've had a hundred years and copious tournaments that have kind of created their reputation so it's it's hard to we're trying to do fifty years work in three you know and that so it's even if we get the product there, it's still going to take a little time for, um, I think, for that to influence, you know, rankings and how people view the golf course, um, both here and, and overseas. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the American top 10 golf courses, there's only one modern golf course in there, Sandhills. And, you know, at this point, it's it's now 25 years old almost. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it, it's, it's tricky because the history and the tradition always get lumped into judging the golf course. Are you guys pulling a lot of influence from those area courses and, or are you trying to build something new and unique? No, we're, um, one thing, it's a bit of a cross between or a bit of a hybrid of some of the other sandbelt courses. Um, there's, there's two courses there. So there's a North course and a South course. And, we built many years ago a, a creek on the south course through sort of some a low section of the of the course, and um, looking at old photos of the site, there were there were actually quite a lot of creeks that ran through the property. So there was there was quite a few wet areas, and so we had an idea to maybe make a better looking creek. We we used some we used a local stonemason to kind of create the impression that it was like an old ruin, I guess. So sort of um, it was interesting because he was he. Clients typically judged how well he did a job by how perfect the the rockwork was, the dry stone wall. And we were like, no, 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 we don't, we don't want it perfect. We want it rugged and old and sort of, you know, almost falling apart. So he, he really enjoyed it because it was totally different from what he was used to. Um, and so we we did that on one hole and it worked out so well. We We ended up creating that creek network through a number of holes so in a way that became a bit of a um a signature of the of the south course whereas the north is a bit more elevated it's a bit more undulating it's sandier and so it's probably more and the vegetation's better a lot more heath and um kind of almost a monostand of of the manicum which is the kind of the the, the tree which most would identify with a lot of the sandbelt courses so it's probably more of a of a typical sandbelt experience and whilst the south is a sandbelt course it's just that the, the the creek kind of creates a little bit of a point of difference between the north um in terms of the the greens and the bunkers though they probably they probably weren't one of the big drivers of the project was conditioning they've, they've never really had firm fast greens which are kind of you know synonymous i guess with sandbelt golf so a lot of work we 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 basically created a new sort of a different style of construction uh, with the green. So a lot of, there's been a lot of USGA greens on the Sandbelt built over the last 30 years, but people have struggled. They really struggled to get them firm. So we went with a different construction technique, a different grass. And one of the things we'd noticed on the old greens was that, that the bunkers weren't, they were very much out of scale with the greens. If, if you look at Sandbelt holes from the air, the bunkering around the green is bigger than the green. So it really, that's what helps create the scale of, of the green sites on the sand belt. I mean, people look at Royal Melbourne's greens and think they're enormous. And they are big, but they're not that big. The, the reason they feel big is because it's so expansive around the green. The bunkering is really expansive and a lot of short grass. So they're these big, um, they feel like these huge, elegant um, green sites. So we very much borrowed from that concept with the green sites at Peninsula. We cleared out a lot of space around them um, and the bunkering now is, is much bigger, much more, more of the sort of capes and bays that people, you know, people talk about, Mackenzie bunkering, but that's probably a different topic. But um, Yeah, so, so more of that kind of classic bunkering style that you would see at Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath. Um, more short grass. Yeah, and, we're, and we've cleared out a fair bit of vegetation to try and return it to what we hope is what the property would have looked like, um, you know, a hundred years ago before there was a golf course there. That's, that's cool. Natural, much more natural. And, and, uh, yeah. Then you got the yeah. other side that's like got the rustic Creek. 
So absolutely, and it's sort of. I mean, they've given us, they've afforded us a lot of license, which has been. I mean, they've been just a fantastic club to work with, and so much. I don't. You just wouldn't get that license at many of the other sandbelt clubs. You 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 wouldn't be afforded that amount of license. But as a result, what will happen is that. You know, the North is 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 the Sandbelt golf course that so many of the other Sandbelt clubs want to be. You know, so they they really do have the potential to leapfrog a whole bunch of clubs and you know put themselves as a thirty six hole venue. You know, they they should be it should be the the place to join in Melbourne. Yeah, and you get variety between the two yeah. courses. So it's um yeah. so with you be down in Australia. I'm curious, I ask this question every once in a while, who's on your Mount Rushmore so f- for ar- architects? That's a Mount Rushmore, I don't know if you know, is a uh, famous... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> um, well, it's hard. To, we're so heavily influenced by Alistair McKenzie here. Um, rightly or wrongly, you know, but I, I think probably rightly. But, you know, he only spent 10 weeks here, Mackenzie. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And so, as a, you know, he came here, Royal Melbourne um, engaged him to come out, I guess through the RNA connection, um, to come out and design their course. I think he got paid £200. And to help pay for that fee, they sort of farmed him out to a lot of other golf courses and they did a deal with him to split the fee. So for any other work that they could find for him, he would go halves on his consulting fee. And he was seriously active. I mean, he came here to Melbourne. He did the design for Royal Melbourne. He consulted to Kingston Heath next door and did a a bunker plan. So, you know, at that time, it was quite common for courses to get built and then they would do the bunkering scheme after they opened. So they would kind of see how people play the golf course and then figure out where to put the bunkers. Um, so that wasn't uncommon at the time. So he did a bunkering scheme for Kingston Heath. He did a plan for Metropolitan. He did a bunkering plan for Victoria. He went to Adelaide and did a plan for a design plan for Royal Adelaide. He went, went to New South Wales and went to New South Wales Golf Club, Royal Adelaide. He consulted at Bonnie Doon. He consulted at two or three others. He went to Queensland and consulted, to, I think, Brisbane Golf Club, Indrapilly Golf Club, um, all in 10 weeks. And he saw really nothing built. He saw the fifth West at Royal Melbourne either built or partly built, which is that kind of famous iconic par three from the elevated to elevated green and you hit across the valley. And he supposedly saw a little bit of 15 at the uphill par three, which was previously a, what could only have been an odd hole. It was a blind par four over the hill. So he brought the green back to the top of the hill. And I think he saw some bunkers built on the 13th at Royal Adelaide, and then he was gone. So, but he influenced, he, he struck up a, a relationship with Alex Russell, who became a designer in his own right, and designed a pretty cool set of four golf courses. He did the Royal Melbourne East, he did Lake Karen up in Perth, he did Yarra Yarra, and he did Paraparumu in New Zealand, which is a great links course. And he also taught... Uh, a father and son team of construction guys. So uh, Mick Morecambe, who was the Royal Melbourne superintendent, he built all his work there. And then he, he, he built the work at where they did a couple of greens at Metropolitan and, and did work at Victoria. And basically what you know as the sandbelt look with bunkers is is very heavily influenced by Mick Morecambe or, or his son Vern. And Vern became the superintendent at Kingston Heath, where he was for 46 years. And he changed that golf course a lot. He changed the bunkering a lot. He redid greens. He redid tees. So it's, so it's always interesting with Mackenzie just how much people talk about the credit. The big unknown factor, like primary, his primary influence was 10 weeks long. Maybe not that much. You know, did a couple of plans, but never saw them built. So he never really wrote about in his books, how, how great the work was in Australia because he never saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, but his secondary influence, I think, was huge. That's the thing. You know, he was clever that he found guys that were talented, I guess educated them, 
and then they then went on and that then influenced the next generation and the next generation. So it was a, it was a defining moment. Those 10 weeks really changed the course of golf course design in Australia. So as an Australian, to get back to your question, he's clearly uh, front and centre in the Mount Rushmore of golf. Um, I think it would be crazy if sorry. somebody did a golf course the way they used to bunker it. If they yeah. waited until some people play it and then bunkered it, how much more effective and how fewer bunkers a golf course would have. Yeah, the, the only tricky thing with it, I guess, would be the green complexes because it's kind of hard to build bunkers and greens independently from one another. You know, they really, they need to be built as one kind of shape. One, you know, you're sculpting the land and you're building the green at the same time as you're building the, the shapes around the bunkers. Might be a little um, bit more costly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But fairway bunkers, yeah, you know, I guess it's sort of, I mean, you would like to think now that I think, you should know. It's good enough to think through it. <laughs> um, so you got Alistair McKenzie in your one spot. Well, he's in there. I mean, I don't know. I've traveled quite a bit. I really like Colt in, um, obviously, in the UK and, and the influence he had over there. I really like Colt courses. I've got, I'm a, a bit of a sucker for, um, I haven't played a lot of his courses, but I'm always fascinated by um, Rayner and McDonald. Um, and I would love to see, I've, surely the time's right. Actually, in fact, I saw a photo of someone who was doing a bit of a ode mm. to Rainer. I, you kind of wonder with golf course design, whether just how, whether like art movements, whether we'll go through a different, you know, I mean, a lot of the new courses built now sort of look and feel similar. You know, it'd be kind of nice. I think it'd be cool to, for someone to, to build a super geometric, um, Rainer style, still strategic, but just visually quite different golf course. I, I would love to see that. I think they're doing it at Arcadia Bluffs is one that looks similar. You know, it's got the the squared off greens and oh, and, okay, and the trench. I, it would be cool to see. Bunker. Yeah, it'd be cool to see one of those in Australia. I would. I mean, un- unfortunately, I think because. He's so unknown here that you, if you started down that track, they would pr- the client probably wouldn't let you unless they were really well travelled. Um, they would look at it and go, oh, "You know, what are you, what are you doing?" Um, that would be the challenge. The challenge to convince them that you know it's it's a worthy cause. Um, so yeah, probably um, I would probably have Mackenzie Colt. We'll we'll put McDonald. Mc McRainer. You know, we'll make him one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe just hanging off the edge. I think the Morecambs, I always feel a bit sorry for. I don't think they get the credit they deserve here in Australia anyway. Everyone talks, you know, talks about Mackenzie. But, um, yeah, the, the, when you look at Kingston Heath, there's it, it's a result of four or five different people over 100 years. It's not, you know, to call it a Mackenzie course is way overstating it. How, how do you, I mean, as an architect and knowing that a lot of work in this era will be redesigns and usually there's only one architect on the scorecard. What's your thoughts on approaching, you know, should every architect be listed on a scorecard? Well, I, I, they very rarely, the magazines and they very rarely get it right. They either don't research it properly or they, Mm. they credit the, the kind of the known, person i don't really see why i would prefer that they didn't credit any architect to be honest i mean it's the champions the golf course and not the architects you know or or, or trying to trying to label one particular architect it's so difficult um i mean kingston heath for instance is you know it's it was a dan Suter course um mckenzie did this plan Vern morcom was Oh, Mick Morkham built some work there. Vern Morkham was a superintendent. Um, I mean, we're, we're the consulting architect now, but it would be totally wrong to, to credit us to it. Um, and then you've you've had all different captains and presidents over the years that have influenced it. Yet the golf course today is the best it's ever been in a hundred years. And to try, if you tried to restore it to any particular era, even the so-called McKenzie era, it would be a worse golf course. 
No way would it be as good as it is now. So it's kind of like, I don't know why. I mean, magazines are just obsessed by labeling each course with an architect. I would rather they didn't. <laughs> just call it, you know, Kingston Heath. My my uncle gave me this old Jeff Cornish, Ron Witten book. It's called The Golf Course. For He, he yep. found it in his basement and gave it to me. And uh, it's so funny. I, I, it's got like all the golf course in America and the architect. And like, there are so many that are off. Like they've got Shore Acres in Chicago, which is a Seth Rayner listed as an Allison. Yeah. It's like, you know, how, do, how, do that, how does somebody think that Rayner's work was Allison's? They're like completely different. Yeah. Um, so unless, and unfortunately, I mean, in reality, some course, not all courses, I mean, some new courses you could, you could pretty confidently um, say who did it, but you know, some courses kind of read like the credits to a film. You know, I mean, it's kind of, you'd have to list twenty people, and which clearly no one's going to do. So I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I kind of get a bit over the whole um, trying to label every every course to a particular person or people. I just I wouldn't bother myself to leave it off. So a lot of my listeners are in America. And uh, if if you were going down, if you're an American going to Australia and you got seven days and it's yep. probably the only day, only time in your life you're going to go, what, what golf courses are you playing? Well, it's, you really have to come to Melbourne and I would, those four that I mentioned before. You would play the two courses at Royal Melbourne. Absolutely. You'd play Kingston Heath. And we'll say a couple 36-hole days, not all 36-hole days. Okay. So, well, Royal Melbourne you can do in a day. Let's call that a 36-hole day. So it's one day. Victoria, another. Metropolitan, another. Kingston Heath, another. So that's four days. I would then fly to Barnburgle Dunes. You've got to play Barnburgle Dunes and Lost Farm down there. Then on the day or two left, you could go to King Island. Selfishly, I would say you've got to come and play Peninsula Kingswood because it'll be finished by then. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's always a tricky one because people ask us that question, you know, would you go? But, but it's, so, it's such a big country and not that I'm, um, you know, there's not – the depth of golf in the other major cities as there is in Melbourne. I mean, you you could extend that if you wanted and play ten courses on the sand belt. Whereas if you went to New South, if you went to Sydney, you, you know you might play New South Wales and perhaps the Lakes. Well, that's two. You know, if you went to Queensland, you're probably playing Royal Queensland and maybe maybe one other. And Perth is really like up Adelaide. There's Royal Adelaide and maybe one or two others. So th there's just not the depth. So to really get bang for your buck, I, I think you're better off staying in one place and doing it properly mm -hmm. um, rather than trying to fly all around the country. So I think it's the No Lying Up guys pretty much did that trip. I think they it was Melbourne, predominantly Melbourne, and then go down to Tasmania. Yeah, it, it looked like an awesome trip. We're constantly here. <laughs> you know, it's on my bucket list. I'm not sure whether I'll ever get there. You've just got to suck it up and get on a plane. I mean, it's not that far. Couple of movies, bit of a sleep, and you're here. So. Yeah, one of my buddies is trying to get me to go next year or like this yeah. next uh, holidays. So maybe we'll okay. see. Maybe. I got a lot of places to go. <laughs> every every <Yeah>. podcast, I <laughs> add another place to where I want to go. Um, but uh, what, what's like the? Is there any like hidden gems that are worth seeing that nobody ever goes and sees? There's a couple in New Zealand, definitely. Not many people see Para Para Umu. That's a really good Lynx course. It's a fantastic golf course. And there's another course way on the southern tip of New Zealand, which is a Lynx course. Um, it's probably, let me think. Um, I mean, there are some courses around that certainly to an American they would never have heard of that are worth seeing. But you just probably wouldn't do them in your seven days because there's too much other good golf. I gotcha. It's uh, is is Tigarangi any good? The the uh, 
Mackenzie down there in New Zealand? Oh, uh, Titerangi? Yeah, Titerangi. Yeah, apparently, so they they restored, um, they did a lot of work there 10 years ago. Apparently, I haven't seen it since, mm-hmm. but apparently very good. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, of course, you've got the, the new courses there as well, um, which are, you know, really good. So you, you could easily do a trip, a separate trip to New Zealand in seven days. It's not that far trip. too, right? No, it's it's a it's like flying to Perth from here. It's like a three hour flight. Yeah. Um, from the New Zealand, it's not very far at all. You just need a month, really. You need a month. Well, everywhere. that would be better. <laughs> you need that a- would be better. I mean, it's a long way to come for seven days. I will say that. Yeah. I mean, you're just getting over jet lag, and then you're going home again. You if need, you could, you need if a you month could stretch or... it to two or three weeks, that would be better. Yeah. So uh, we'd be uh, we'd be missing out if we didn't talk about your sketches. And uh, I mean, oh, okay. Yeah. You're you're one of the uh, the world's uh, forefront golf sketchers. How did how did? <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Were you just always good at at drawing? Uh, yeah, I was always interested in it. My dad was an artist, or um, so he he taught uh, art at school. So he was an art teacher. Um, so when I was young, I, I mean, I had a, a, a teacher right there at home. So and I enjoyed sketching. So he, he he would sort of show me basics, you know, perspective. And if I got, you know, if I was drawing something for a school project, he would sort of show me perhaps a, a better way of doing it. And so I, I kind of picked it up and put it down over the years, but never really seriously did it. And to be honest, it was only when I got into golf course design there was a reason suddenly to draw because it was very helpful. I think when I first started working in it, because no one else really could draw, it was an advantage to, if I had an idea for a hole, to be able to get a bit of paper and draw it on it in the field and say, what do you think of this? Suddenly it, it was something that everyone could see and everyone could understand and it was a really good way of getting your point across. Whereas otherwise... You know, everyone's just, you know, pointing at <laughs> pointing at various things, and um, you know, it's just confusing. So there was a reason to draw, and then you know, if if you're in a committee room, or um, sometimes I would I would draw for a plan, you know, to like do a worked up sort of drawing to um, do as part of a presentation. So I think that certainly got me interested in it again. Um, and then it's then when um, Barbugle Dunes was built, Richard. The owner wanted a, a course guide. He wanted a yardage book. And I'd done ones before when I was playing, just sort of little, little ones. And this, But suddenly this needed to be like a commercially produced one. And I was pretty comfortable I could do it. And that was really the first one I did. And then out of that, just um, not, not really, I didn't really ever advertise, but just word of mouth. Um, people asked me to do other course guides. And then I was quite keen to get, to improve my proper painting, so not just course guide drawings, but actual landscapes and things. And um, so, I just over particularly the last ten years, I've probably spent a bit more time doing it. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't have as much time to do it as I would like. Um, I tend to. It's only when people ask me to do a painting or commission me to do something, it, it tends to sort of um, maybe maybe panic and think, okay, now now I've really got to knuckle down. So that kind of forces me to really spend my spare time painting for a month until I can produce something that I, that, that's really good. And then, um, yeah, but then I, I, it's not like I'm sitting at home each night just, um, yeah, with the paints out, um, sketching and the like. But Yeah, well, you yeah, got to have a life too. I enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. What was that? Sorry? <laughs> you got to have a life too. You can't, you can't I just know. Work, do it. Well, <laughs> And because we've, we've been so busy, it's just, yeah, I probably haven't spent as much time doing it. But just recently I did, a, a friend wanted uh, some gifts for, he, he took a group over to America. And so I did I did six kind of proper watercolours for him and they, they turned out really well. So that, that was good because I basically painted for two months doing those um, in my spare time. And it kind of, I definitely got uh, improved at the end of it. I, was, I felt pretty good. So I'm a, I'm a horrendous drawer, sketcher, painter yep. what would be the yep. most basic easy piece of advice for somebody to get a little bit better uh i think you've got to understand perspective i think really 
If, so you mean like to draw a picture of a hole as it looks like if you're standing out on the golf course? Yeah, of? yeah. Like if I if I wanted to draw a hole, <laughs> I'm horrible. Yep. I feel like I'm a thirty handicap asking yep. for a tip on the range before a round right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um, it's really getting a photo. If you just got a photo of a of a golf hole. Of, of the green and the bunkers and just kind of just forget all the detail, but just look at very simply where the, the, where the flag sits, the green and just the rough shape of the bunker and how the, how perspective works, you know, it's things that are closer or bigger and, you know, further away are, are smaller. Just having an understanding of that would be very helpful. That, that actually makes sense. Cause if I drew it, one, I would make them all the same size, you know, there wouldn't yeah, be any yeah, perspective. So, so, and that's sort of, yeah, you see people, um, and they don't kind of fill the page, like you see guys do a little sketch and it's this kind of little bird scroll in the middle or whatever or over on the edge. It's like, no, 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 let's, let's fill the page. Let's see, you know, make the green. Just sort of understanding the size of things, you know, how big a flag is, how big a green is, how big a person would be if it's standing on the green. Just kind of understanding the sizes and the scale and just how perspective works, that would, you would go a long way to improving your drawing. You don't have to worry about, I mean, even if you can't, you don't have to be able to draw lifelike people or, or lifelike trees, but just a simple line drawing, just a kind of green and bunkers. It's so helpful. I mean, it, it, that's where it's helpful, I think, in design. It's just you don't have to be brilliant at it, but it's very helpful to, like, if you're with someone on a machine and you want them to build something, that no one looks in plan view. No one sort of really understands if you draw something as though it's because most plans are all from the air. It's very hard for people to understand how that translates to what's on the ground. Whereas if you can just do a really simple drawing in either in the dirt or on a bit of paper, suddenly it all makes sense. You know, how high a bunker lip's going to be or the fact that, okay, you can see the left half of the green, but not the right half of the green because it's covered by a bunker or the bunker comes a third of the way across the green or, um, you know, those things in a very simple sketch, suddenly it's you, you can give someone enough detail to spend the day building something. It means you can go off and do something else. Um, that's where it's really helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. It's uh, If you're just telling somebody, they're going to take your words and, and interpret them in their head how they think that you want it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, we like to give the guys a little license to be creative but yeah if there's something that you really want you know we want to make sure it's this or that you know i'll do a little sketch and just sort of talk through it mm -hmm. and uh, leave it with them so you ready for underrated overrated sure yep hey, go for it what everybody's waiting for <laughs> <laughs> all right um sand belt bunkering I would say it's underrated. In the world of golf, it's underrated. All right. I, I think that's, that's I, I mean, here we see it all the time. But the, sh the, the shaping and the, the way the, uh, the short grass works into them, it's still, I think there's still so many clubs that could learn from um, sandbell bunkering. Yeah. Yeah. Just the mowing lines. Like even if you yeah. got a little bit closer to that, it would be yeah yeah yeah. You don't have to copy the sandbell bunkers, but understand why they work well. I think yeah, totally underrated. Yeah. Um, kangaroos as an animal, you know, <laughs> underrated or overrated? Yeah. Oh well, I don't know. Um, again, well, probably overrated for us. We see them, yeah. Well, they're not, yeah. We see them all the time, I guess. But um, I think, I think the rest of the world probably wants to see more kangaroos. <laughs> I, I imagine <laughs> that it's the easiest thing to spot, like a tourist, is seeing the way they react when they see a, re a kangaroo, right? Because I'd, well, like, totally, I'd like point. I mean, <laughs> like, look at I that. Mean, if you think about it, they're a really odd creature, like very strange. You know, I mean, there's not really anything like them anywhere else in the world i guess uh, i hear Bizarre they're mean <laughs> you what sorry i hear they're mean they can be 
Yeah, they're big too. Some of them. So there's a there's a there's a grey kangaroo and a red kangaroo. The red kangaroos, you, you see the greys down here in Sydney and Melbourne. The red ones are in the outback, and they are really when they stand up on their back feet, they are tall, and their their tail is so strong. You know, they can kill like a dog, like whipping the dog, and then they'll claw at them. Oh. So they can be mean. They're quite intimidating. When you see one uh, standing up on its hind legs there. I've played golf tournaments before where, you know, you hit your ball near the kangaroos and you kind of, you don't really want to go in there and get it. It's, um, they're pretty intimidating. They're kind of like uh, the Australian swan. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, swans are pretty, uh, they can be... I think they, they can, can break your arm with their neck. You know, this... Oh, really? Yeah, I like if they that. snap oh, their right. neck, they can break a human arm. Wow. So, yeah, the course I grew up caddying at had a, like the meanest swan in the world in one of their ponds. <laughs> and like the thing, like you'd be walking like 20 yards away from the water edge and the thing would be hissing at you. It was, you know, and then one kid broke his arm from the swan and that swan was gone. So, um Disappeared. Yeah, let's get back on on, on subject here. Um, overrated, underrated golf in Japan. I've never played there. I would say overrated. I reckon it's that. Hmm, wait a sec. Let me think about that. Because there's a couple of great courses there. I've always wanted to see, but they're I think they're a long way from where they were, from all, by all accounts. I'm going to say overrated. Yep. Maybe a, a place that's ripe for re, uh, restoration of the. I know that like Allison did a good. Yeah, Allison did it. There. Yeah. So there's I, like uh, yeah, there's a there's certainly three or four that are, you know by all accounts worth seeing, but they're just you can a bit like you know perhaps like LA Country Club was before the restoration. You know, you can kind of tell the bones of a great course are there, but it's just um, needs a bit of work to get back. Is there anywhere like in Asia, like or Southeast Asia, that's like got sandy soil that the world hasn't found yet for golf. Not sure about Southeast. I mean, well, actually, the east, the world's found it, but the east coast of Vietnam, where there's quite a few courses being built, there's there's some really good sand dunes there all the way up. Greg Norman's group did a course um, there. Uh, unbelievable sand dunes, huge Ho Tram. It's called Ho Tram Links. Um, unbelievable site, beautiful site. So there are pockets. I mean, we used to think twenty or thirty years ago, you know, you you would didn't necessarily think of Asia as having all these great sites, but they do. You know, there's there's some really good land through um through Vietnam, uh, China. There's some really good sites. So so they're around, absolutely. And and there's some really good sites in Australia. It's just that we don't have the population to you know the 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 build it and they will come kind of concept is it's hard here you know we just don't have the population base of um of america really yeah to make it work yeah um, but there's some perth's very there's some brilliant land in perth um up and down the coast where you can drive an hour up north of perth and it is incredible land on the water sandy ground undulating beautiful vegetation but they built a number of years ago. They built a really good golf course over there, only forty minutes from Perth, and no one goes there to play. It's like you can't convince them to go. That's crazy. So you, you could you could build a sand valley, um, but just trying to get the people there would be the challenge. As, as a Chicago, I live in the city of Chicago. It's like a minimum of forty minutes for me to golf anywhere. And if I could play yeah. golf on a coast on a coast on sandy on sandy ground, I'd be like forty minutes done. So. Well, yeah, and, and that's that's the challenge for those courses on King Island. You know, the two that were built, they're spectacular, but you've either got to get on a little plane to get there, which is not everyone's kind of um, cup of tea, but, um, you know, and they're, they're tiny. The island's got 1,500 people on it, so there's not enough people on the island to play there to just keep it, you know, ticking along. So... It, it's just hard, you know, really hard for those isolated courses to get the traffic. Yeah, I mean that's that's almost everywhere, but you know they 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 also don't have like the big American budgets that t 
tell everybody that this is the greatest course ever before it's open. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, but, um, Mike, thanks for coming on and, uh, we'll look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Um, you're on Twitter and, uh, what is it at Mike cocking? Oh, my Twitter. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then uh, you're are you on Instagram too? OCCM Golf one as well. Yeah, OCCM Golf um, at OCCM Golf, and then they're on Twitter. Uh, lots yep. of great pictures of uh, golf courses that make you uh, kind of drool. Yeah, so fantastic. Look forward to seeing some of your work in the near future. Terrific. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 